I love that song. I think that is like one of my favorite songs. Let's give these guys a hand because they are amazing. Come on. You know, there may not be as many people in this service as there's going to be in the next service, but you guys are better. All right. Can I just tell you that right now? This is the smarter, brighter, more enthusiastic crowd, right? Everybody at the second crowd, they just, they can't, they can't even, they're barely awake. So you guys are always have the most, now you don't know what I say to them. So, you know, I mean, it's just, but no, seriously, open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter three. Let's get to work this morning. Acts chapter three. As you're turning there, um, I'm going to actually have on the screen Deuteronomy 15, 10, and 11, because as we go into this brand new series that we're going into right now, which is called Uncommon Courage, what we're going to see is that there is a courage that's taking place in the early church because of what we learned last week, right? We learned that the church in Acts 2:42 through 47, right, is to be rooted. Everyone say rooted. We are to be rooted in certain disciplines and certain things that, in essence, describe and facilitate what the church is supposed to be. We are supposed to be devoted to what? The apostles' teaching, number one, which means the word of God. Uh, We are to be devoted to fellowship, which means we are devoted to one another, okay, in church. We are devoted to one another. We belong to each other in Christ. And then we are devoted to the breaking of bread, which is communion, And then also we are devoted to what? We're devoted to prayer. That our life is a constant prayerful cry to God. Okay, now as we are rooted together in that way, it gives us courage to step out and do extraordinary things for God, which we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at one of the early, first extraordinary things that the church did as a result of being rooted in him. But in order to understand what's happening this morning, you need to understand a little bit of Jewish law, Deuteronomic law, okay? So Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 10 and 11 up on the screen. You shall give to him, that's the poor, freely, that means without restraint, without, without holding anything back, without any kind of begrudging in your heart, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. In other words, when you give to somebody, let's just say you're driving down the road and you decide to give to somebody on the side of the road, all right? And we're going to talk about who to give to in a minute because I think that's important, right? But if you give to somebody on the side of the road, you don't go, man, I feel so guilty, I'm just going to give to this guy, right? That is not honored by God. God honors the, the cheerful giver, the person who says, I'm going to give with all of my heart and without reservation. Now go back to the first part of that. Go back to the first. You shall give to him the poor freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. So do you see there's a connection here? There's a blessing that comes along with uh, being generous, okay? That God will protect and he will watch over all that you have. He will take care in the business that you do and what you put your hand to is, is every effort that you put your hand to, God will begin to bless that. We find this, all the, uh, by the way, also in Malachi chapter three. The entire, almost the entire chapter is about this same principle. Now, we're not prosperity gospel people here, so we don't believe in that idea that you know, if you give a guy $5 on the side of the road, God will give you back $100. That's not how that works. That is a false doctrine. That is a wrong way of thinking. And just try it one day and see if it happens, okay? Watch it happen one day. You'll be like, wow, that was awesome, you know? I mean, if that were the case, there would be no stock market, right? And people would just be giving money away to each other, expecting more and more, more money to, to, to come their way. The, the Bible does not describe God as an ATM. It, it describes him, watch this, as a protective father. And when he gives to you and you freely give back to those in need, what ends up happening as a result of that is God knows he can trust you and therefore he can give you more. 
That's the biblical principle behind it. Okay. Four, there will, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand, right, to your brother, the needy and the poor in your land. Okay. All right. So just, I want you to understand this principle out of Deuteronomy before we jump into this, because we're going to look at a miracle that revolves around a poor man. Now, there's more going on in this scene than actually seems like you can imagine. But I want to pull a couple of things out of um, actually Exodus chapter 29. It's not going to be up on the screen, but I want to pull a few things out of this. One of the things that it says is that as you gather together in the temple, which what we're going to see in a moment is that the early church was gathered together in the temple, okay? They were still doing Jewish things as believers in Christ. All right? They gathered together around their Jewish brothers and sisters in the temple, and God's presence was promised among the poor. And so one of the things we're going to see is a connection between these two things this morning. But I want you just to see a few things. Number one, um, Jewish rabbis early, at the time of Jesus, and at the time of, of the Essenes, the Essenes were um, one of three religious groups that led um, Jerusalem, uh, um, Israel, right? You have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, and you have the Essenes. The Essenes were the most radical group, and to be part of the Essene clan, you had to renounce all worldly goods, and that's not, of course, what we saw in Acts chapter 2. Um, we could still maintain our money. We could still have private property and possessions, but we were to be generous with them. But the Essenes said that if you are to come and be part of us, that you have to give away everything that you own. They, were, they took a vow of poverty. Now, early rabbis were trying to figure out what to do with these teachings because you have these Christians who are now being extraordinarily generous with all that they had. You had regular Pharisees who were not generous with what they had. And then you had the Essenes who were giving away all of their stuff. So what do we do in this? And they came, so early rabbis came up with these four principles that I thought were really helpful. Number one is give to your brother first. And, and that means family. Give to your family first. Your primary job is to your family. Your job, the Bible says, of a husband, if you do not provide for your family, you are worse than an infidel. In other words, your, your job is to make sure that you're providing. And now, of course, in our culture, we have a broader understanding of that. It's both men and women that are providing for each other, and there's nothing wrong if it's just one or the other or if it's both. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. In fact, the Proverbs 31 woman that's described a, great, a woman of great virtue was a woman of commerce as well. She did some things at home, and she also worked. There were both things happening there. And the second thing, is that we are to give to the temple, right, or the church. In Malachi chapter 3, it says make sure the storehouse is full in the church. So first it's family, second it's to the church, and then it's third, give to the needy. Now the word needy here, in the original uh, language that's, that's used in this verse, is, is specifically calling out to people who are in need but not poor. In other words, this is a hand up and not a handout, right? Somebody just falls on a difficult season, but they're being super responsible with their life. You reach out to that person. You help restore them back to self-sufficiency. And then fourth, it was give to the poor, which is a handout, which is not to be expected to be returned, which is not expected to produce change. Why? The verse we just saw, um, the poor will always be with you. So our generosity in the world will never produce an eradication of poverty. It might reduce poverty, but it will never primarily move poverty out of the realm of our culture or society. The poor will always be with us. All right, Acts chapter 3. I want to introduce you to our main character. As you have that understanding in place, um, it plays into our understanding of this passage. Acts chapter 3, I want to introduce you to our main character. Uh, his name is not given. 
We don't know his name. In fact, uh, that is very, very important to the story because he is a nobody. Um, He's not a man whose name is worthy. He's not Solomon or David or Abraham or Moses. This is just a man. And he is poor. He is wretchedly poor and falls into the fourth category of not somebody who needs a hand up, but somebody who needs a hand out. He's not able to provide for himself. He is paralyzed in in a way that's very specific. In the text, you see that his ankles and his feet are broken, so are, are destroyed in some way, congenitally from birth. So he is born this way. There is kind of almost like a cerebral palsy kind of thing going on here. His ankles and his feet are, are, are uh, destroyed. Nothing says that he's completely paralyzed. Could he move from here to here? Probably. But nevertheless, this precluded him from actually taking on work as a laborer or as a farmer or as a shepherd or any other things that would be taking place in first century Palestine. And so, of course, you know, if you're this guy, there are a couple of things that you have as implications for that. It's not just that you're poor and you're on government aid. They didn't have such a thing like that. There was tremendous amount of of shame that went along with this because in pharisaical law, there was a belief that you, if if you are if you are born in this way. There, there was, there was a, um, a lack of blessing upon your life. Just as if a woman is born and is not able to produce a child, there was a lack of blessing on her life. So not only did this man who has no name have to struggle with his disability, he had to struggle with the disability of other people looking at him as if there was something wrong with him morally. Okay, so we're going to see in a moment that he sits outside of the temple and begs. It's the only option that he had. For a woman who was in this situation, it would be prostitution or it would be begging. For a man, it was just begging. Those are the only two options in first century Palestine for those two groups of people. And so there was just a tremendous amount of shame that would go into this man's life. In a minute, we're going to see that, that, that he was carried from place to place. And I, I don't know if, you, I mean, if you're a guy, you're going to understand this. That there's just something about having to depend upon somebody else so utterly and so amazingly. And so absolutely that it would just tear you apart on the inside. And so I think as we begin to enter the story with this man, we understand that this man is not only wounded physically, but he's wounded emotionally and socially as well. He could never marry because he could never provide for his family. He was alone. Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, let's read it. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they, daily, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood, and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. 
And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. A couple of things um, for us to dive right into at the very beginning. Um, Knowing the condition of this man, knowing both his emotional and spiritual now because he's outside the temple gate and his physical disabilities, we can begin to empathize with him in amazing ways. What God does for him is extraordinary, but it goes way beyond what he asked for. 3-1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple. Of course, Jerusalem was at the was at the at the pinnacle of the of 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 this area of Israel. So it was literally a walk up to Jerusalem at the temple hour of uh of the ninth hour. Now the Jewish day began at six AM. So we have six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, six hours, right? One, two, three. This is three o'clock in the afternoon. So at three o'clock in the afternoon they went forward. Now let me tell you why that's important, because uh there were two primary times of prayer and sacrifice. One was at uh, 6 a.m., morning prayers, and then the other was afternoon prayers in Judaism, right? And there was something called the Olas Tamid, the Olas Tamid. The Olas Tamid was something that was given in Exodus chapter 36 and also in Leviticus, but God laid down the law for Olas Tamid. And what it was basically was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of a lamb in the morning and a lamb at night, the money for which all of this was provided by the people who gave a shekel out of every bit of their earnings for this lamb every single day. Imagine, that's a lot of lambs. It's over 700 lambs that are killed every year for this just one sacrifice. So you have, in the morning, you have a sacrifice for this. In the afternoon, you have a sacrifice for it as well. They would gather together, and they would hear the Hebrew Shema. Okay, the priest would gather them together. They would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Um, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So you see, even in temple worship, you see the rootedness, right? There, there are morning rhythms and afternoon rhythms, and all of these things were used to tell Israelites, this is who you are. This is, who, this is your identity in God. This is who you are with God. Now, of course, this was tragic because this man was laid at the city gate, at the temple gate, but not ever allowed to enter into the temple. Why? Because again, those who were leaders of the temple said there's something wrong with him because he was born that way, and therefore he was excluded from the worship of God. In the Olah Tamid, in the Olas Tamid, what God promised was, as you gather together for the sacrifice, my presence will be there. I will gather as if like it is unto the Ark of the Covenant. I will gather together in the Holy of Holies. You will worship in my midst and praise me there. So this was a physical gathering of God in the Old Testament uh, temple. And every time this sacrifice was given, God's presence would come. People would praise and rejoice in God. But this man, This man who deserved no name in memorial. This man has never been allowed to go into the temple at this point in time. At three o'clock, they entered the temple, and a man lame from birth, it's important that you know that, was being carried, the undignity of that, the, 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 the terrible dependence of that, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. This was his day-to-day responsibilities, were for some people to walk along and help. Now, the passage that we looked at earlier there in Deuteronomy would have dictated that the people, the men who knew this man, would carry him. And as part of their act of worship, they would carry him to the temple twice a day. Why twice a day? Because it's the best time for him to beg for alms, for money, right, was to be at the temple at the same time everybody came in to worship. So it was in a Jewish mindset, it was very clear that as you gave to this, you were earning, if you will, goodwill with God. Okay, So this wasn't simply out of an altruism that people would come and give money. It was because they also recognized that it brought them closer to God. 
God promised to protect their crops. God promised to protect their finances. So this was, there was a selfish motive involved in this as well. All right, verse 3 continues, verse 2 continues, whom they laid daily at the gate, temple that's called the beautiful gate, to ask alms for all those entering the temple. Watch this in verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now you have to understand, this probably isn't the only man at the temple uh, gate here, at the beautiful gate. There are probably many others who are in the similar circumstance. But Peter and John, John the son of Zebedee, right, uh, brother of James, they're walking, he's walking with Peter, and this man, among all of them, reaches out and says, please help me, give me something. And Peter and John look at him, and I don't know, it's not said, it's not stated in the text, we don't know if this man knew who Peter and John were. We don't know. But if he did, he might have asked for something more than what he did. But as it was, he simply asked, fix my momentary need. And I think what we're going to see here in a minute is that the momentary need was nothing that he really needed. Of course, this is no judgment in any way. There's no condemnation in this because if you and I lived in this age and we were at this place in our life and we were poor and we were like him, we would want to, to know that our daily bread was being taken care of. Give us this day our daily bread, right? We would want to know that our daily bread was provided for us. So there's no judgment, there's no condemnation for it, but it does give us an insight into the very nature of suffering both in his life and in our life. And that is that suffering narrows us down to the very thing that we believe we're suffering over, and it excludes everything else. Now, we don't know anything else about the rest of his life other than the fact that he probably wasn't married and that he probably lived alone, but we don't know anything else about his life. But for you and I, we know that when we suffer, we tend to have a very myopic view of our life at that point. The other day, I told you about a lady who came in that was struggling because her husband was, was cheating on her, um, we, we have situations and circumstances like that come in all the time. And one of the things that I constantly want to remind people of is this. I want to remind them and you this morning that when you suffer and when you go through hard things, the very nature of suffering is that it makes our view of the world and ourselves small. Okay? It pulls us into the suffering. So one of the things that I'll say to somebody when they come in, like this woman that came in the other day, is this. Is, hey, I know that things are really going south in your relationship right now. I know that everything in your life seems really bad right now, but you have to understand this is one sliver of your life. If you're having marriage troubles, your husband is not the guy that he needs to be or your wife is not the woman that she needs to be or you're looking for that husband or wife and that whole thing doesn't, hasn't worked out so far, you're just trying to figure it all out, you need to understand that is not your whole life. That In those moments, we have a tendency to make that everything. Okay? This man doesn't look at John, he doesn't look at, at Peter and say, can, can you heal me? He simply, he simply says, he simply says can, can you just give me my daily bread? And there's nothing wrong with looking for your daily bread and providing in that way. But I want us to see that there's so much more that God wants to give to this man. He wants to heal him dramatically. He wants to fix all of his circumstances that have led to his suffering.